Let's turn in our Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 5 to a passage of Scripture that I find encouraging, exciting, and terrifying all at the same time, if it can do that, and it can. And uh, when you come to this, it's kind of like uh, doing missions announcements. You're supposed to pick one topic and kind of one central thought and the passage, you know, and that's proper teaching technique. There's several things in this little paragraph that are of major significance to us. And it's hard to pick one over the other, and so we're going to touch on all of them, and then you pick out which one is most important for you today or where you need the application most of all. If you've been with us in 2 Corinthians all along, you may remember, hope you remember, that chapter 1 uh, was built around that Greek verb parakaleo, which is usually... Uh, has something translated something to do with encouragement or encouraging. It's traditionally translated into English. I don't know who started it, but it's carried forward. It's translating it in that chapter, uh, built around the subject of comfort, which is certainly part of encouragement. But I encouraged you weeks ago uh, to not limit it to that, but to see that chapter in particular and this letter in general as a great encouragement to the church to indeed be the church for each Christian to step up and really be the Christian that he or she is called to be with the limited, yes, limited opportunity that we have in this life. I have a picture, I think, it's going to pop up here. This, this, we're not going to do virtual Israel uh, today. Uh, so this is one picture. You only get one this morning, and it has no video to it. I had another picture of my friend Bruce McAtee, who's missionary to Athens, uh, standing on what we're looking at. But my picture's uh, vertical instead of horizontal, and it's on a rainy, crummy day, and it, it's not a very good picture. So James found this one for us, which is much better off the Internet. Standing where you are looking at the picture... You're in the marketplace of ancient Corinth. You could stand there 2,000 years ago and do a 360 and be looking at the mall of Corinth. People would be all around you doing all kind of things, a busy, happening, buzzing place. If you did a 180-degree turn uh, back in the other direction, you'd be looking north, and you'd be looking at the road that went down to the canal that's the reason that Corinth is there in the first place the ships that would come in one side and go out the other, and a uh, very international uh, trading location, people trying to avoid going through the dangerous waters of the Mediterranean. And so Corinth came along and grew and flourished economically, but it was a place where all kind of crazy things went on. The mountain in the background is the Acropolis. Uh, there's an Acropolis, the more famous Acropolis is in Athens, where the Parthenon sits up on a hill overlooking the city of Athens. This is the Corinthian version of that, because that's the Echo Corinth. Uh, it looks down on the city, and at the top, in Paul's day, there was a temple up there, and uh, with temple prostitutes and everything imaginable went on up there in the name of religion. It's just a crazy place. And the sailors of the world uh, came through there, and uh, into that crazy context came the Jewish people before Paul's time and, and planted their synagogue. And then Paul comes with his missionary team first to the synagogue. 
And then they moved next door and planted the church of Corinth, First Baptist Corinth, uh, right there in the city, about 100 yards from where you're standing if you're in this picture. That's the mountain in the background. The stonework that you see there is a platform about the size of this platform, only maybe twice as high. It is the bema, or the bematos, it says in this passage, which is the judgment seat. The judge would go up the stairs that are on the back side of that. You could go around even today if you want to and stand up there. And the judge would walk up there and sit down and you'd have Judge Judy or the, the Corinthian equivalent of that. Public trials right out there in the middle of the market. It'd be like if we shut down our courthouse and took our judges down to the mall and put them out there in that middle section so people shopping, coming and going, if they were bored or looking for some entertainment, remember they don't have cable TV yet, you could go to the mall and listen to some court cases. So it must have been a crazy thing. Paul, Luke tells us in Acts, stood on trial right there at that judgment seat. Uh, his adversaries were coming against him. Gallio, the judge, a secular judge, said, look, uh, this is not anything that the court needs to be messing with. This is a religious matter, and you got this group, these Christians, and these Jews, and look, we don't want to have anything to do with this, and I'm not going to rule on it, and uh, Paul's free to go. And then the crowd turned on his adversaries and beat them up, and uh, so the crowd did a, a radical change there. But Paul stood on trial right there at that judgment seat. If you're standing in front of it, you'd be looking at the feet of the judge. It's that, about that height. And uh, with his life on the line, he stood there and burned into his mind, and, and probably many cities would have had the comparable to that, just like their courthouses in every uh, county seat in Georgia. Uh, but this one is the one that's burned into his mind especially and in this letter we're looking at this morning, he's writing back to this community, to Corinth. And when he refers to the judgment seat, everybody has this picture that you're looking at in mind. Only it would have been fixed up more and polished up and the judge sitting up there and a lot of activity around it. But that's the picture that Paul is talking about in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. <clears throat> well, let's look together at the passage and we'll begin to see the several subjects that are of importance there to us. He says, we know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Now, if you've been through the first four chapters of 2 Corinthians, you know that Paul is talking about the outer man is wasting away, but the inner man is being renewed and he's he's drawing the attention of the reader and it's a continuation of chapter one's message of encouragement and comfort when needed but he's drawing our focus away from the here and now to the eternal and he says if this earthly tent collapses if it's uh, NIV has it if it's destroyed we have a building from God a house that's not even made with hands. It's eternal. It's in the heavens. That's ours. He's writing as a Christian apostle to Christians, not to the human race in general, but to the believers. And he says, this is our promise. Now, you need to be blessed by that. <clears throat> you need to be encouraged by that. But you need to be challenged by that. 
and asking some basic questions about if that's true, and it is. We have no less authority than the Apostle Paul. If that's true, what do we do about it? Dick mentioned his friend who's at the threshold of passing from this life to the life to come. Uh, Some First Baptist Church of Dublin family members are struggling with battles for their health. And as we noted in the last few weeks, uh, it is certain, certain, unless Jesus comes crashing back into our world in his glorious second coming, you and I are going to wear down, break down, and this old house is going to be destroyed, and we need to hear the words of the Apostle Paul. And you can be comforted if you're losing someone or you've lost someone in Christ, you can be powerfully encouraged by verse 1 alone. There's something on the other side. It's a building. It's not just a building. It's a building from God. It's not made the way we make things. It's made the way God makes things. It's not just for now. It's eternal in the heavens. And it doesn't get any better than that. Verse 2, Paul continues the thought. He says, For indeed, in this house we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven. Well, maybe you don't groan. Maybe you don't yearn for that. Maybe you're not looking for that. Uh, But Paul sure does. He says, I understand. Uh, This is the guy who's been beaten and left for dead and probably been sick with all kind of things along the trail and all the things that he endured in those missionary journeys. He says, we groan. It's tough. Uh, You could translate that. We complain. And a lot of us do that from time to time. Along the trail of this life, there is adversity and struggle. And he says, we groan. And the spiritual side of us, the enlightened side of us, the Christ-focused side of us, longs for what's on the other side. It's really a participle translated, greatly desiring to put on that dwelling. And that's what I want. I want to go to heaven. I want to be with Jesus. I want to be on the other side of all the craziness of this world. Now, we don't instinctively think like that. But the Bible invites us to that, and Paul encourages us toward that, a radically different way of thinking where we are heaven-bound from the beginning. He says it really kind of in an appalling, goofy kind of way, but it's very strong. He says, greatly desiring to put on this dwelling, I mean the one from heaven. And in English, we just kind of push it together and it kind of loses the... He says, I mean the one from heaven. Everybody here this morning wants something. What do you want? Paul says, I want heaven. And I know this is going to run out and I'm going there And I'm fired up about it. I'm excited about it. I want heaven. That's my dwelling place. My heavenly dwelling. Verse 3, he says, And as much as we have, we, having put it on, will not be found naked or unprepared. Uh, God will provide. Doesn't really have anything to do with the threads you put on your body this morning. Has to do with spiritual preparation. And he says, we're not going to be found wanting or lacking at that great moment, at that strategic moment. For indeed, while we are in this tent, that's the body, uh, this earthly dwelling, 
while we're in this tent, we groan. He's already said that once. We complain, being burdened, because we do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed, so that this mortal may be swallowed up by life. Did you know that's what happens when a Christian dies? And all that this world throws at us, and we've seen some dear people to us go through this incredible adversity, and when it all seems to be caving in and it can't get any worse, Paul says, mortal is giving away to immortality and being swallowed up by life. Life is taking over. It's incredible. It's awesome. Oh, don't miss it. Don't read 1 Corinthians chapter 5 quickly. Every word is precious. And Paul says, every time the world takes something away from you, if you're in Christ and you're living for Christ, it's being swapped out by a sovereign God for something that's better. And it's going to get better and better. And you're going to be ushered into that which is unimaginably good. Swallowed up by life itself. Life the way God defines life. Not the way the commercials in the world depict it, but life as God defines it, that's going to just swallow you up. Kind of like Jonah and the whale. It's just going to come along and say, you belong to Jesus. Come on in. So, what an encouraging word by Paul. Now, he's uh, probably at least a decade away from his own martyrdom. He's got a long ways to go, but he's already looking toward that. And some of his friends have already died for the faith, and some are dying for the faith, and others are struggling in other ways. <clears throat> now, I told you this passage, this 10 verses, is loaded with theology. And you could take any one of these verses and run with it and make that the message of the day. But we're not going to do that. We're going to try to pack them all in there uh, and just touch on them lightly, and you can come back to them on your own or with us in another context. But verse 5, he says, now, he who prepared us for this very purpose is God. God's got a plan. <clears throat> Those of you that know the four spiritual laws and have used that, law one, God loves you and offers a wonderful plan for your life. A wonderful purpose. Uh, what the old Westminster Confession of Faith called the chief end of man. God's got a purpose for your life. And the one who fashioned you for that purpose, who designed you and prepared you for that purpose, is God. God wants to do something with you. Not humanity in general or the church, but you personally. God wants to prepare you for his purpose. He says, who gave us the Spirit, that's with a capital S, as a pledge. That's the Holy Spirit. The Bible teaches us that when one comes to Christ, not superficially, but a genuine conversion, really committed to Christ, that the Holy Spirit comes and indwells that person to seal that person for eternity, to purify that person, to guide that person, to encourage that person. He is the paraclete. We were talking in chapter 1 about parakleo, the comforter, comforting purpose. Uh, here is the, the paraclete, the comforter. The Spirit is the comforter, and Paul says God's just given that to us as a promise. Have you ever been promised something? We get promises. I make promises. 
I babysat two little guys last night so their parents could go to the concert. And uh, watching Georgia with one eye, I watched uh, Cliff and Joe with the other, and we had fun. And uh, I made a lot of promises to get through the night. <clears throat> well, God makes a lot of promises to us, uh, but they're not superficial, and they're not shallow, and, and they're genuine. And he says, here's the down payment. Here's your guarantee that I will deliver on my promises. The Holy Spirit is going to be with you to indwell you, to seal you, to prepare you for eternity. And that's your pledge. What more could you want? What more? You want a contract from God? I'm just going to send the Holy Spirit. Third person of the triune God from eternity past with all the power and resources of glory just going to come and dwell with you and make sure you comprehend that this thing's for real. And this is forever. It says, therefore, being always of good courage uh, or being always confident. Again, back to chapter 1, he was talking about being encouraged, being comforted, being built up. It says, therefore, being always of good courage. Are you always of good courage? And knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. And then you got this little dash, then the way the New American Standard has that dash, or mine here has dash, dash. It's kind of like there's a broken thought here, and the translators don't really quite know what to do with it, so they just put it down. Uh, the, the NIV type translations kind of iron it out and make it the New American tries to keep it literal and so it just kind of like they, they demonstrate the broken thought of Paul and he's going to come back to it but he's going to do sort of a parenthetical thing here <clears throat> it says being of good courage knowing that while we are at home in the body in this present body we're absent from the Lord now you got to be real careful verse 6 thinking through the theology Jesus said when he gave the great commission I will be with you always even to the end of the age. So what Paul is saying here is not that, that the Lord's not present in your life and he just promised that the Holy Spirit's a part of your life as the seal and pledge of all God's commitments to you to give you assurance. But he just states a, a profound obvious that when we're in this body, in this life, until you die, you are limited spiritually by this body. And we cling to it, and we don't want to let go of it, and we fight like crazy to preserve the status quo. And Paul says, no, hey, you need to know. This body's holding you back. Now, I believe in the resurrection and the transformation and the physical life to come and all those things that are taught elsewhere. But he says, your body, as it is now, in this world, as it is now, is restraining you from a greater glory and awareness of who Christ is. So when you get all caught up in preserving what's right here, right now, don't forget that. And for, some, for all of us, really, ultimately, the greatest glory is to die and get on beyond this to the next chapter. Paul writes to the Philippians and he says, for it is very much better. It's not okay. It's very much better. But the body holds us back this present life. 
you're still here. Well, if God wants you there and you're still here, Paul is dealing with this word purpose. What's the purpose? What do you do with that? What do you do about that? If we're still here in these restraining, limiting bodies in this, in this fallen world, there must be a reason. Verse 7 is that little uh, side note that Paul puts in there. He, he writes like we talk. He says, oh, yeah, by the way, for we walk by faith and not by sight. Uh, instinctively, we walk by sight. Uh, we, we look around at things and we make decisions on the basis of what's obvious to the human senses. And that's what we want. And that's what we pursue. And that's what we're guided by. <clears throat> and Paul says, no, no, no. Uh, we're Christians and we walk by faith. We walk heads up, looking at what's out there and making our decisions, not on the basis of what the world looks at, but, but uh, the promises that we have in Christ. He says, and we are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. That's a radical statement, isn't it? But what an encouraging thought. If someone dear and precious to you is, is facing death, in the near future, or maybe you are, or maybe they're just uncertain things that will come into your world, crashing into your world, and rob you of the things most dear and most precious to you. Paul says, I'd rather be with Jesus on the other side. You can have all, Paul's already surrendered all this stuff. As far as I know, Paul owned nothing other than the cloak on his back and some scrolls he carried around. <clears throat> so he's given up all of that stuff. He said, I'd rather be absent from this body than home with the Lord. As if to say, you can't be both. And so when we wrestle through this in our own thinking, our own reasoning, we say, do we really want to live to be 120? When we can depart this realm and go to be with the Lord forever and a redeemed glorious setting that is very much better, Man, we, we think so contrary to our Christian faith sometimes. And Paul's coming back to just basic Christian logic. He is there. Uh, he is our ultimate goal. We're here. We're groaning, he said. But somehow we're going to transition into that which is in his presence, and it's better. It really, really is better. Therefore, therefore, always looks back. Uh, on the basis of what's been said, therefore, we have as our ambition, or we aspire toward, or we endeavor to, whether at home or absent, that means in this life or in the life to come, whatever happens to this body, whatever is thrown at us, whatever our circumstances, we have as our ambition. But the NIV says we have set our goal to be pleasing to him. That's what I want to do. So I hope you get up uh, from your pews in a few minutes and go back to your next station of life. And I hope you get up on Monday morning and go wherever you go on Monday mornings with this goal. Today, I will be pleasing to him. Uh, today, I want to live a life that accomplishes the purposes of God for me and him working through me to make a difference in the limited time that I have in this life.
Because the world is going to try to get you to live in a worldly way, and the world is going to try to get you to think in a finite way, in a temporary way. And Paul keeps saying, no, forget all that stuff and live for eternity, live for Christ. Absent from this body and present with the Lord, living today like we really believe that so that we get up and we live lives that are pleasing to him. Uh, that are on track with his will and his purpose for our lives. Now we've got one more verse. And what I want to do is come back to this tonight. And I know not everybody comes back. Uh, so sorry. But some of you will be back tonight. And we're going to go to 1 Corinthians that will build on 2 Corinthians here. And pick up this theme and see what Paul said in another letter to the Corinthians on the same subject that's of huge significance to us. But he rounds out this paragraph in verse 10 saying, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Remember our picture? We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. So that each one may be recompensed, or the NIV's better modern English, that each of us may receive what is due for the deeds done in the body according to what he or she has done, whether good or bad. Now, you've got to be there. Theological landmines all over this chapter. Uh, and Paul is not, not, not teaching that you have to merit your salvation or do enough good works to get across and be accepted to Christ. And we'll see that very clearly in tonight's passage. That's not the point of it. You're saved by grace through faith in Christ alone, and that's the gospel. You need faith in Christ and a, a truly transformed heart. Uh, beyond that, that's what Paul's writing about, what you do with that. But your salvation is based not on what you've done, but what Christ has done. And don't ever forget that or take that lightly. So don't confuse that with what he's trying to point out in verse 10 as he finishes up this passage. He says, we're going to all stand before the judgment seat. It's not going to have the, the high court of Corinth there evaluating your life. It's going to be Christ looking at your life. And everybody's going to get what's due. I find that incredibly encouraging in a world where justice seems to be elusive and truth is confusing and different people have different notions of what's right and who's right and all these things. It can be frustrating, it can be disillusioning, it can be a discouragement to us. But Paul says the day's going to come when the judge of judges, the perfect judge, is going to sit on his throne and he's going to sort it all out. If you've been robbed of anything, anybody's gotten what you think is rightfully yours, or you've not gotten what you think you have coming to you, if your case is legitimate, hang in there. Christ is coming. Hang in there because you're going to stand before Christ, but don't get too puffed up and don't go in with your agenda and all the stuff that you've done. And, and oh man, as I said, this passage for me on some days is a terrifying passage. You think that you're going to take your 60, 70, 80, 90, 100 years of life and say, here, Jesus, this is what I did with it. And you drop it out there in front of him. And Paul says, when that day comes and you stand before Christ, you'll be able to present your life to him and you'll get back 
What's due you? Response to all of your life, the good, the bad, and the ugly. So, like I said, we'll pick this up tonight, but as you're thinking about application of this to your own experience, you might be well served by asking the question of yourself, what do I have to present to Jesus on that day? If he gives me 95, 75, whatever, 105 years, and I run all that time off the clock, I've used up all my coupons and all my opportunities, and you stand before Jesus someday and say, here it is, Jesus, this is what I did with it. Can you imagine being not before the throne in Corinth, but before the throne of Christ and saying, here it is. This is what I did with the opportunities, with the education, with the family, with the, the church experiences, with all the, the freedoms that I had as an American. This is what I did with it. This is my investment. <clears throat> Do you have a pack? Imagine... Uh, going to a party where people are giving gifts and giving extravagant gifts and you're the only person in the room that didn't bring anything. Imagine wishing that you were prepared and knowing that you're not and wishing that you had done something about it when you could have. And you and I, uh, we make a lot of promises. <clears throat> I came across some promises uh, this week. I was going through another drawer cleaning out some things in my desk. And this is a Christmas card. And I, it's from 1993, Peter was eight years old. This is from Pete. And it's uh, got a Christmas tree and an airplane on there, which has something to do with Christmas. And uh, it said, Merry Christmas, Mom and Dad. This is his gift that year. And you open it up, and it's some coupons. And somebody taught him to do this. Some good Sunday school teacher up in Missouri he said you know you may not have a lot to give to your parents but you can make some promises and do some things for them as, as gifts of service and they'll like that even more than something you can buy at the mall and what a great thing to teach kids and so Pete came with this is his gift and, and no the coupons are still here they were never redeemed <clears throat> this is 20 something years ago mom and dad from Peter I promise to Clean my room. We're still waiting. <laughs> and he doesn't even live there. It's become a storage bin. Mom and Dad, I promise to do the dishes. He does that every now and then. Mom and Dad, I promise to cut grass. And he does that every now and then pretty well. Still waiting on the cleaning the room part. It's possible to live a hundred years in this life and do nothing more and be a Christian, come into the kingdom and do nothing more than kind of fill out one of these for Jesus. Oh, Jesus, I promise, you know, when the time comes, uh, when some things line up, I'm going to do this and that for you. I'm going to do something. And most people live and die with most of the coupons unfulfilled with very little to offer the Savior who gave all for us. Paul says, I don't want to be discouraging, but I want, I want to be realistic. I want you to know that you're going to stand before Jesus someday. We must all, and he's writing to Christians, this is not final judgment for the unbelieving world, which is horrific. This is talking to Christians, and it's not to decide whether or not you get to go to heaven or not. 
It's just for Christ to deal with an evaluation, an honest evaluation of your life. And he says, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Jesus, this is me. This is what I became. This is what I did. This is what I have to offer. And Paul says when that happens, he'll take care of you with perfect justice. Nobody's going to be cheated out of anything. Everybody's going to get better than they deserve. That's the whole tone of the New Testament, the tone of the Bible, the gospel. But here's this incredible thought that you'll stand before Jesus and say, Jesus, here it is. This is my life. Remember that show? I think it was This Is Your Life or This Was Your Life. This Is Your Life. Remember that? A few of you are old enough to... I've seen it on old videos, I think, or something. But they bring somebody out, black and white TV, and sit them down in the middle of the room, and they'd sit there, and they hear voices, and then somebody would come out. It's people from the past, and, and you kind of relive that person's life, and, and that's it. And Paul says there'll come a, a moment for this is your life, not for black and white television, but in the presence of Jesus Christ. And he's pleading with the Corinthians to grow up. He's pleading with the Christians to do something meaningful with their lives while they have opportunity. To be the church for Corinth. To send out missionaries to Athens and beyond. To really rise up in the purposes for which Christ died for them in their personal life experiences. Oh, Corinthians. You get off on all this crazy stuff. And he writes about it in both letters. He says, focus on something that really matters so that you'll have true things to offer to the Savior someday and you don't have to dread that day that he writes about in verse 10, but you can come excitedly before the throne as though you're like the little kid who has got a good package for mom and dad and he just can't wait to give it. You ever done that or received that? Just can't. Peter, man, he, he is an extravagant gift giver. I mean, he got way beyond these, and, and he embarrasses you on your birthday or at Christmas. He's like, Pete, you don't, really don't need to do all this stuff, man. But he's, he's, like a, he's almost like a little kid. He's a 30-something-year-old kid, and he, it's like he gets on the phone. He's like, Dad, I, I got you something. I can't tell you what it is, but it's red. And it's, it's like, it's like it might be something that you wear. And, you know, it's like he can't wait to give it to you. And when you get it, you can't do this with it, and you have to, you know, and it's like, yeah, I understand what you're, you're doing. He can't wait to give the gift. That should be normative. That should be the way it is for Christians. I can't wait to stand before Jesus and give him the results, the fruit of my life, my offering to him. Would you bow with me in prayer? Father, we're grateful this morning that you love us profoundly, you save us, through a gospel that's better than anything we could ever expect or deserve. And then you call us to live this Christian life. We're grateful for the encouragement that comes from this letter, but we're, we're also very aware of the challenge that's there, <clears throat> the caution that's there. Oh, God, guard our hearts that we would not foolishly invest our lives in things that have no significance or that dishonor the, the cause of Christ. Lord, help us to invest these precious days in things that really matter. We'll not do that instinctively, but we pray that your Holy Spirit in us, working through us, 
might guide us toward those goals. And we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.